Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock, lead pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today we're going to talk about the Christian response to medical assistance in dying, more commonly known as MAID. Uh, You will have seen this in the news recently as it was tabled as Bill C-7, which was an expansion to MAID in Canada. And we want to have a conversation about that today. And so, Aaron, maybe just to get us going, bring people up to speed. What's going on in culture? What is MAID? How have we gotten here? Uh, Maybe just kind of bring us up to where we are to today. I think most Canadians are probably aware by now that uh, Bill C-7 has been passed, the Medical Assistance in Dying Bill, also known as MAID, M-A-I-D. And this um, bill is the result of some court cases in Quebec a little while back where people wanted the legal freedom to uh, be put to death by a physician or a nurse nurse practitioner. Of course, any person at any point in time could take their own life. I think there's in and around 4,000 suicides a year in Canada. But this was a request by groups that wanted to provide opportunities in law for health officials, health experts, to assist people in dying. And initially, the purpose of that was to help those that were inevitably and without question you know, on the verge of death, but for whatever reason, their lives were being um, maintained. And so this has gone through different readings and into the Senate, out of the Senate and whatnot, and it's been really loosened up. So there's some concerns in that bill even if, even if I was, and I'm not, an advocate for some limited opportunities for medical assistance in dying, and, I, and again, I'm not an advocate of that for reasons we're going to discuss, I hope. The bill really is, uh, in my viewpoint, pretty broad, pretty liberal, pretty wide open, to the point that it even gives people who are suffering from mental illness, and we know that word is being expanded in terms of its definition. It seems that almost everybody nowadays has some sort of a mental illness. Uh, It's being expanded so that even people with mental illnesses can ultimately apply for that. And what's interesting about that, you wouldn't think that this would happen, but it makes sense in light of what we know about culture, is initially they tried to put boundaries on it and say, well, no, this is for people with physical you know, ailments. They're, they're on the verge of death or they're suffering. And there's illustrations of that. But um, those that were opponents to more of an open view, so that that's discriminatory. Hmm. So why should someone who has a terminal cancer be given the opportunity to experience made and not someone that just struggles with severe debilitating anxiety, which is interesting, right? I mean, historically, the idea of euthanasia or mercy killing would have been discussed around, well, what, what about a child that has, you know, is born with severe, you know, life-threatening disabilities? 
there was discussion about that, the ethics of that. Or what about the 88-year-old woman who has brain cancer and is in pain all the time and requests, you know, to be put to death? Or, you know, what about a 12-year-old that's smashed to pieces in a car accident? There's hardly anything left to them. These are these are the historic conversations that have been had in recent uh, generations, but now it's gone way beyond that to include people with various mental illnesses and challenges. Mm-hmm. And now we know that MAID originally came to Canada uh, and was put into law in 2015. So this is obviously, that was when it was first tabled and ruled. Uh, and that kind of shows us the culture has been going along for a while in this direction. And so we want to speak a little bit about um, the the bigger issue behind it, like the life and death stuff. Like this is obviously, there's a foundational moral issue at play here. And as soon as you give an inch, they say you take a mile. And we see that, right. you know, in 2015, it started mm-hmm. and now it's expanded and we could see it very easily being expanded yet further, right? To being completely optional at one day in the future uh, as they kind of use the rights that way. So can we talk to the foundational issue behind it about life and death um, and maybe our biblical view of that or just view in general? Well, Christians and, and even people of the Islamic faith who have an opinion similar to ours on this, but Christians, when they approach these kinds of issues, automatically we, we want to consult scripture. We want to think through the the moral and ethical components to these decisions. And that is our ultimate authority and our source of truth. And that's where we go. But where our culture tends to go because it has largely abandoned God's law and Christian virtues and an acknowledgement of God's actual supremacy and culture, even though we give lip service to it in our charter, is what does the public think? So they've spent a lot of time polling the public and getting input from you know, experts and advocacy groups, advocacy groups on how they should respond to this. And then they look at court cases and precedents and they receive requests from people with debilitating illnesses, cerebral palsy, who want the right to die or whatever it might be. And so really what we're doing is we're, we're developing these kinds of laws, which are life and death laws relate to moral issues based on man's opinion and who yells the loudest and who lobbies the most. So this this should concern us because, again, even if a person out there for some reason agreed with medical assistance in dying and they declared themselves to be a Christian, you would, you would ask them the question, well, how do you justify that biblically? And they would attempt, I suppose, to justify that biblically. But the problem is in this culture is we've set aside God's law and so we literally live in a culture of confusion and death. We live in a culture where we give people the freedom to abort their preborn children. Uh, we live in a culture where people feel free in academic settings and social settings to discuss whether or not disabled children should remain alive. We live in a point in time now where we're discussing terminating are elderly because that's where the discussion ultimately goes. If a person, if a person's life is overwhelmed with physical pain and therefore they're requesting early death, 
Well, it's not a logical leap to say, well, what about a person who is more or less physically healthy, but they're old and they can't contribute to culture anymore. They, they can't work. They can't earn a living. And they're sitting at home and they're thinking to themselves, well, yeah, I can still make my own food. I can still toilet myself. I can still give myself a bath, but my kids have moved away. My life is kind of useless. I'm, I'm not productive. Maybe they have a utilitarian view of human value. Why not put that person to death too? So we, we, we live in this culture where uh, we're looking for all these different reasons to end life. I mean, I've even been to quote unquote Christian funerals where liberalized Christian pastors are preaching after someone has committed suicide and they're justifying the person's behavior, saying things to the listener like, well, we, we should respect a person's right to take their own life. So all, all of these things are going on. We're butchering our babies in the womb. We're discussing the uselessness of disabled people. We're discussing from a utilitarian perspective, whether a person that's unable to contribute to society should have the right to end their lives. We're, we, we've now passed laws allowing people to be put to death by medical practitioners if they are under you know a lot of pain. And all of these things should concern us. And, but at the same time, it shouldn't really surprise us because we live in a culture that has abandoned God and the morals and virtues of Christianity, which protect life and solve these kinds of issues if we think about them. Uh, so this is, this is uh, these, these are the things that are going on. And I would argue, Chris, that uh, an underlying lie that supports all of these decisions and discussions is the lie that we are autonomous. And that comes from true Greek words, autos, namos, self-law, or you could say self-governed. Mm -hmm. So if we are autonomous, if I, if I am an individual who is a law unto himself, and you're an individual that's a law unto yourself, and everyone else in society is a law unto themselves, you know, the whole like my body, my choice kind of argumentation that even yep. plays a role in abortion, then I can do what I want with my life. Now, if I don't have the resources to put myself to death, I can demand it of you because I'm a tax-paying citizen. So this, this is the lie, and it, it stems from autonomy rather than being ruled by God, rather than allowing God and God's word to rule our lives and to determine what's right and wrong and how we should respond to these issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've seen, obviously, that underlying logic play out over the years is self-law and the inconsistencies of it. Um, even in the recent, you know, we've had restrictions limiting the freedoms of senior citizens to not be able to interact with their family, but then the allowance of seniors to be able to take their own lives through made things like that. For a moment, could you, could you maybe delineate for people the difference between taking a life versus allowing someone to die? Like, is it, suicide or medical assistance in dying to take somebody off life support or maybe just draw the boundaries real clear for people just so we're not confused? Yeah, I, th I think that's that's good. Like the, the Christian worldview doesn't say that our goal is to live for as long as we possibly can and to preserve every single life for as long as we possibly can. 
for for example, in the Word of God, we have you know the Ten Commandments, which are foundational to all of life. And in the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment says, "You shall not kill." Interestingly, there's a different word used in the Hebrew for for um, uh, there's several different Hebrew words used for the taking of human life. So this this particular word it refers to what we would we would call an English murder. You know, you you shall not murder. In the older translations, it might not have been as clear. But the the biggest argument biblically, foundationally, against taking people's lives and they ask for it is no, you're not allowed to murder people. Period. You're just not allowed to murder people. So if we have questions about, well, what do we do with someone who's in ongoing pain? We have to have a separate conversation about that. But the Ten Commandments, which are foundational, is no, you can't murder. I can't just go and take someone's life. Now, a keen student of the Word of God will automatically ask themselves, oh, but what about what about the exceptions? And we do know in the Word of God that there are exceptions to the murder commandment. For example, in Exodus 22, you are permitted to uh, take a life if, you know, someone barges into your home and is attacking you or the thief comes in and, you know, you wrestle with them and take their life. But then it also says, but if the sun comes up, you can't take their life in midday. So there's, there's, there's an exception to the rule and exceptions. We need to think about this clearly. Exceptions don't break the rule. They actually help us to uh, understand the rule. And that is that the, the, the rule is don't murder. The exception is, but sometimes in self-defense, you have to take a life. That's not murder. That's killing or, and again, different words used for that in the scriptures or in the exception of war, in Numbers 10, when the enemy oppresses you, there's justification to take life in war because you essentially are looking at a greater evil being committed by, you know, letting this person, let's say, shoot everybody up in your town or bomb your nation. So there's an exception to that. Or in Genesis 9, there's the exception to, you know, you shall not murder with capital punishment laws. And the reason why biblically and historically Christians have favored capital punishment is because not because they're, they're trying to be you know, wringing their hands in glee. Oh, I want to see someone hung or, Oh, I love the idea of someone being put before a firing squad or not because you're, you're just necessarily seething with anger because this person has taken another life, but it's about justice. Capital punishment uh, is practiced on murderers because there's a, there's a weighing uh, of the crime and the punishment and the punishment needs to in some way reflect the just penalty for the crime that's been committed. So we do have situations where the taking of human life is, is acceptable, is justified in scripture, killing uh, in self-defense, uh, killing in war, killing in capital punishment, but we have those limitations given to us in the word of God and those boundaries given to us in the word of God. The word of God does not give us the loophole of taking someone's life because, you know, they, they're, 
struggling with pain. Again, there's we want to be compassionate about that. We want to be compassionate. We would need to talk about a, a compassionate response momentarily. But I'm just sort of laying out the theological framework here that we don't have a blank card to just go and take life whenever we want, however we want, for whatever circumstances we want, because we pulled the population or advocacy groups rose up that said we should, or some justice minister thought, justice minister thought this was a good idea. We, we simply don't have the authority to do that. Mm-hmm. If you could take a moment and maybe outline pros and cons, obviously we both sit on the same side where we're saying, no, we don't see this as being biblically valid right. medical assistance in dying. But if you were to maybe play, I don't even like the phrase, but the devil's advocate, he doesn't need an advocate, but to play the other side and say, what are the reasons why people consider this an option? What are the pros and cons? I think there's two main reasons uh, why people advocate for it. Sort of the, this would be on like the pro side. The one would be back to this idea of autonomy. It's my body. It's my body. It's my body. It's my body. I can do what I want with it. If I don't want to live, why should you force me to live. So autonomy, this is the philosophical or false theological basis to this issue, to the abortion issue, to to all these things. Um, The more emotional concern would be compassion. You know, admittedly, Okay, let's all be honest. If you walked into a hospital room and someone's just groaning in agony and pain, and you're like, oh, brother, I hope this goes away. And you came back the next day and they were still doing it. You came back the next day and they were still you know, writhing in pain. It would probably cross your mind. It's like my, you know, my dog, if my dog gets hit, hit on the road and the back end is run over and if legs are broken and the poor thing's in pain, why wouldn't I have it put down instead of allowing it to live in agony? This, this is a, a very emotional issue. By the way, I I should say, and I haven't thought about this for a little while, but about, um, I guess it would be, well, it would be 1996. So how long ago was that? Well over 20 years, 20, 25, 25 years, 25 years almost. Our family uh, and my mom and myself in particular were actually put in a similar situation to this. So my, I'm the second born of six children. And my youngest brother on December the 20th, 1996, was in a catastrophic car accident whereby two of his school buddies were killed and he was permanently and very seriously injured. He's still, he's alive today, but he, um, he's very disabled. And when he's not as disabled, he's, he's nowhere near as disabled as we were told he probably would be, thank God. He actually has a fairly high degree of independence. But at the time, when the physicians were examining his body in, in the intensive care unit, he suffered pretty significant brain damage and he suffered some other damages to his um, body, uh, his ear, his arm, his leg, that kind of thing. And I remember meeting with a group of, with our extended family, I remember meeting with a group of uh, physicians and nurses and whatnot very shortly after his accident, a few days after I think it was, and they asked us if we should essentially what, what you would call pull the plug, right? 
Um, take them off life support, let them die. Now, the reason for this, as they explained it, was that they anticipated that if he survived, if he survived, best case scenario, he might be in a comatose state for the rest of his life and be what you know you would call a vegetable. Well, when you're looking at a 15-year-old boy and you're thinking, oh man, the notion of him lie, lying in a hospital bed for the next 50, 60, who knows, 70 years in a vegetative state is pretty hard to comprehend. Hmm. And that's, that's pretty hard to, to take. Um, now, you know, at that point I was a much younger man, but I, I, I was influential in helping to make that decision for my family. And I said to the physician, I said, we, we want you to do everything in your power to save his life. And even if he ends up in a vegetative state, we will love him. And in fact, his disabilities and his agony will provide us with more opportunities to demonstrate the love of Christ to him than if he remained a healthy person. And what was interesting is the physician, who I came to find out later was a Hindu, said to me, I actually agree with you, but I had to ask anyway. Hmm. Now, by God's grace, he, my brother went on to um, kind of be a miracle guy, right? He, he, he exceeded all odds and, you know, he walks with a serious limp, but he, he can physically stand up and walk. Mm -hmm. Not really well, but he can walk. He can talk, he can interact, he can feed himself, he can toil himself, all that kind of stuff. He actually lives a, a pretty good life. Uh, in fact, the trauma of his circumstances were probably more painful on us in the years to come than they were on him. Mm. Now, he wasn't, by God's grace, and isn't in a situation where he's experiencing physical pain every day, which is good, but his entire life has been altered. You know, he'll never marry, never finish high school, never drive, never be able to hold down a job. I mean, he could step forward and say, this isn't the way life is supposed to be lived. I want to be put to death. But his suffering, shall we call it, has been a blessing to many people, including being instrumental in leading another of my brothers to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. So from a Christian perspective, when... God, God often allows us to go through various trials and tribulations and suffering. And these things can be redeemed for the good. And God can use them to bring great honor and glory to himself. And I, I think in our culture, we just have this notion, we have like a theology of comfort. Like my life is mm -hmm. terrible unless I'm comfortable. Mm-hmm. And of course, we all want to be comfortable. We all want to be healthy up to the day we die. We, you know, we want to have sufficient money. We want to have nice weather. We want to have our vacations and our homes and functioning vehicles and all that. And just, you know, the exact right number of kids and the exact right breakdown of girls and boys and the beautiful wife or the handsome husband. And that's just not how life works. We, God does bless us, but all of us will go through trial and suffering. And we need to think about how the Lord wants us to use those to bring honor and glory to him. So this is, you know, obviously a very personal thing and something that I've thought through yeah, myself. Absolutely. And that kind of leads into some, some of those critical biblical considerations about a theology of suffering that maybe 
maybe predominantly here in the West, we don't have a very good grasp of the idea of the redemptive nature of suffering. Um, real quick, because I, you mentioned that, I think this would be valuable to people listening. Suffering has a redemptive quality here and now often, but is there more than that? If if nobody gets saved by your suffering, is it still worth it? Is if you're suffering alone in a hospital room and nobody interacts with you and you feel like it's just better to end it, mm-hmm. is there is there something more to it? Well, suffering is a testimony to the world around us. It's also a testimony to the heavenly hosts, to God himself. And it's also part of our own sanctification. So when we suffer and respond with faith, and when we, by the way, as people who are interacting with someone who might be suffering, respond with compassion and grace, both the response of the helper and the response of the sufferer is a testimony to the world that is marked by selfishness and a improper understanding of what makes human life valuable, which at the end of the day is, I would just argue a little sidebar, is because we think life is defined by pleasure. And if we don't have pleasure, we have suffering, then it's useless. Mm -hmm. And defines life by our utilitarian output. If I can't produce, if I can't work, if I can't marry, if I can't walk, then I'm a useless person. So this is a secular godless worldview coming in. So when we respond to suffering, we actually combat those underlying worldviews or those lies that are present in culture. But secondly, our, our response to suffering is a testimony to the heavenly realm, that we are people of faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. That we have faith beyond the grave. This life is just a little blip in time, you know, wedged between two very long eternities. Um, and then third, it's sanctifying in our own lives. We, we need to be people who rely less on comfort and less on pleasure and less on our output and find our identity and our worth and value in the fact that we are made in the image of God. We are eternally loved by him. His precious son shed his own blood for us. He died so that we might not have to die eternally. Th- these are things that we tend to grab hold of and think more about and value to a greater degree when we suffer. And, and I'm sure you would say this as well, Chris, and because you know most people I talk to would. When life is great, it's great. But unfortunately, if the greatness and good times last too long, we tend to start to idolize and love life a little too much. Mm-hmm. And we don't necessarily value the things that are of this um of our, our of our eternal life of of heaven uh, as much as um, we should. Mm-hmm. So, um, a, a lot of a lot of what I what I'd like my listeners to think about is is to think beyond the event to the truths or lies that are we're, we're defending or attacking undergirding this medical assistance and dying in our culture and to look at it from a spiritual perspective and to ask more, more, more profound, meaningful questions about it instead of just fixating on, well, what do I do if a person's suffering? 
this is a, and again, there's, there's a, a response to this, I think we can consider, but we have to also think about the philosophy, the worldview, the theology, mm-hmm. the truth, the lies behind it. Mm-hmm. I think telling stories of like your brother example, or I'm thinking of a guy that I know that uh, in the last two years has gone through very, very difficult hardships to the point where he was yet, you know, in the hospital with like a 4% chance of survival, made it through and came out the other side after almost a year of it being in the hospital and is a very different man um, and would actually say it's one of the best things that's happened to him, which is, it's actually very hard to understand having not gone through it, but uh, a great reminder there. Can we take some time to talk about, okay, what are the alternatives? Let's talk about um, what is the solution? Cause we don't want to be just the people that say, this is bad. Don't do this, but we don't get to, uh, where we want to go with that. So. Yeah. Well, well, I think f- fundamentally we, we have to understand that p- causing someone to die, uh, when they're in pain is a violation of scripture. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a violation of scripture. So it's just, it's just not an option. It's not an option to stick a needle in someone's arm and put them to death. Nor is it an option, you know, to slip them the needle and say, when you're ready, stick it in your own arm. We don't have the right to take our own lives. So again, it's just not an option. Even if there, even if we, even if I had nothing to say beyond that, no solutions beyond that, it's just not an option. It's a violation of the sixth commandment. It is murder. And so even if I was in a situation where someone was crying out for me to take their life and they were in pain, I, I don't have the authority to do that. Do you remember back in, um, in the Old Testament of 1 Samuel where Saul is injured in the battlefield and he asks his um, armor bearer to, to put him to death? Right. And Saul was suffering. He was suffering. His son had been put to death. He's suffering emotionally, mentally, we could say. He's suffering physically. And the armor bearer refused his request out of fear. Now, unfortunately, the armor bearer then took his own life, which, you know, we could say he made the right decision, then he made the wrong decision. Later, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, when King David finds out about this, that Saul and Jonathan had died, he questions a young Amalekite. I, I think if I remember correctly, they'd been fighting the Amalekites in that battle, but maybe there were some Amalekites on their team or some guy wanted favors or whatever. So the, uh, the, the Amalekite comes and basically says, I put, I put Saul to death. I came across him. He was suffering. There's actually an, um, an, a, a potential discrepancy in the text. Someone would say, well, did, did Saul put himself to death or did the Amalekite put him to death? We can clear that up really quick. Uh, when Saul ran himself through with the sword, he he might have actually stayed alive for a little bit longer. And after the armor bearer put himself to death, maybe the Amalekite came along and finished him off. Or maybe the Amalekite was just making it up because he'd plundered the body, you know, stolen some jewelry or some precious items mm-hmm. off of him and just kind of thought maybe he would get favors with David by claiming to have taken, you know, Saul's life. But... David chastises him for touching the Lord's anointed, 
for taking Saul's life. And then guess what he does? He puts the Amalekite to death. So this goes back to my original statement that we don't have the right to murder, but there are times when uh, a person in a proper position of authority has the right to take life or a citizen has the right mm -hmm. to take life if they're defending themselves. Okay, so there's, there's something for us to, to think about there. But the, um, so I think it's helpful for us to distinguish too when it comes to people dying back to like the hospital or nursing home situation where someone's really suffering. There's a difference between letting someone die and making someone die. There's nothing in scripture that says we cannot let someone die. Now, that's not to say that if someone gets hit by a car and they're on the side of the road and you know, their legs broke, we're like, eh, you know, I'm late for an appointment. See you later. And we let them bleed out or something on the right. side of the road. Like we have a responsibility to be like the good Samaritan, right? Where we're taking care of people that are injured. But if someone is dying, so back to my, my brother, if I, I basically said, give this guy a chance, like leave him on the machines for a reasonable period of time. But let's say they said, well, your brother, if you, if we, if we didn't have him on a life support machine for literally the rest of his life in a completely unconscious state, then he's going to die. Then at some reasonable point when the brain swelling went down and we had an opportunity to assess, I would say, take him off the machine, quote unquote, pull the plug. Because I don't, I don't think the biblical vision is, well, let's hook people up to machines. Let's keep medicating them. You know, let's, let's, let's perform a, you know, a, a 20th surgery on the person to keep them alive. There, there is a certain discernment and discretion that needs to be exercised there. If a person's dying, they're dying. And while we want to exercise some intervention, if our intervention means that the intervention never stops, we just have to continue to intervene to keep the, you know, to keep the body alive, just intervene, intervene, intervene. You know, at, at some point, we're sort of playing the role of God as well to mm -hmm. just keep a body a heart pumping on a machine year after year after year after year when there's there's nothing going on there. I, I don't consider that a moral moral response. Um, but those those cases aside, you know, we can let people die. It's okay to let people die. It's 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 life. I will one day die. You will one day die unless Jesus returns first. Every person listening to this will one day die. You know that someone said tongue in cheek. The statistics on death are impressive, a hundred percent. 100% of people die. But making someone die, injecting them with a, a, a potion is murder. It's interesting that the Hippocratic Oath, which is you know a, a pre-Christian era oath written sometime between the 3rd and 5th century BC, so a pre-Christian oath. Uh, and, and there's been some amendments to it, fragmentation to it, but one of the statements in the early Hippocratic Oath, which historically physicians took, I don't think they take it today, is I, I will not administer poison to someone, nor will I give someone poison to kill a child. And, uh, in other words, in, in the Hippocratic Oath, even in Greek thought, the idea of giving someone poison to take their life or giving someone some concoction to kill an unborn child was considered by the Greeks immoral. And think of how far we've come where we now have, we can have a, a physician come in and deliver a child. The same physician could get her to scalpel and 
cut the child up before the child is born. The same, the same hands could take a life and deliver a life. The same hands that could give us uh, medicine to reduce our pain and suffering could give us medicine to kill us. So the, the, the solution to this, of course, is palliative care for people who have physical traumatic um, you know, end-of-life pain. And we live in a culture and a time where thankfully we have, you know, more medications than you can shake a stick at. So if someone is, we're talking about people now with physical pain that are in, you know, the final days or final months, their final years, of their lives, good palliative care. This is a compassionate thing for Christians to invest their money in, for taxpayers to invest their money in. There's other options besides, oh, do I let them suffer or do I kill them? <laughs> these are not, mm-hmm. this is, these are, this is a, a, a false, uh, false dichotomy, false dichotomy. Yeah. I mean, it's not one or the other. There's a, a, a middle road here, a better road, we should say a higher road. And that is to, you know, alleviate their suffering by giving them good palliative care. Now we talked earlier about people with mental illness, people with mental illness and I have a, an opinion on that, which might be a little complex, but I'll, I'll try to summarize it briefly. I think the word mental illness is a pretty stretchy, elastically, elastic-y kind of phrase. We, we tend to apply it to almost anything. So when I was a boy, if someone said you have mental illness, that would mean that you have like kind of psychiatric, what we would call psychiatric problems, or maybe a brain injury from, from a car accident or something like that, or battle. And we understood that if a person's physical brain has been damaged or the chemistry of your mind has been damaged, that you have a physical problem and therefore you go to a physician, a specialist in the physical, for as much help as they can offer. That just makes, it's common sense. But because we're integrated beings, body, body, soul, mind, and spirit, much of what we would call mental illness today is a result of relational problems. It could be dietary problems, spiritual problems, demonic attack. So our minds, our minds don't function really well when we believe lies, for example. So if, if you were my father and you were to say to me every morning, you know, Aaron, you're useless, you're useless, you're useless, you're useless. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. And I'm a little boy and I receive those lies, which aren't true, but you're telling me lies. Do you not think it's going to affect the way I think, act, and feel? Of course it will. Mm-hmm. Or if I am being taught lies, I'm just a product of evolution. I'm not eternally loved. I'm not made in the image and likeness of God. My worth is just defined by my utilitarianism. You know, these kind of lies that are prevalent in the West, the secularized West today, of course, it's going to affect my life. So if I don't have a good job or, a, you know, a beautiful wife or the perfect life, it's going to do something to my mind. And I'm going to struggle with everything from depressive thoughts, despair, uh, suicidal thoughts, all these sorts of things. We just, we lump them all together. This is mental illness, right? And we say, if you have mental illness, go to your physician. If the physician in agreement with you determines that, yeah, you're an advocate for medical assistance and dying, we're going to kill you. 
And I'm just like, just a sec here, put the brakes on. This is where the church of Jesus Christ and the gospel comes to bear. Mm-hmm. Many of the mental issues that we all have, and we all have a degree of mental illness because we're not yet completely sanctified, are repaired by hearing truth, receiving truth, and allowing it to affect the way we think, act, and feel. And that truth is ultimately found in the, in the word of God. So I guess my response to you is kind of like two-pronged. If it's a genuine physical pain that a person has, let's give them good palliative care. But if it's someone with a mental health crisis, if it's determined that it's actually a physical issue, yeah, go to your physician and get the medication or treatment or whatever you need for that. But if it's determined to be a spiritual issue, a relational issue that is affecting your physiology, because spiritual issues can affect your physiology, emotional issues can affect your physiology, your brain chemistry, your body chemistry, then go to a soul physician. Mm-hmm. Go to a, a pastoral counselor, a biblical counselor, a, a wise discerning mentor that can help you to think through the lies that you've received and believed and to bring truth to bear upon your life, to bring redemption and healing. And to, in that respect, not only extend the length of your life, but also the quality of your life and to help you to live a life that brings honor and glory to the life giver who is our creator, who alone, by the way, is is um, the one that ultimately determines who lives and who dies. Mm-hmm. It reminds me that we're in such a spiritual battle. Mm-hmm. Satan is described as the one that comes to seek, to kill, to destroy. And he does that on multiple fronts, obviously attacking yeah. us spiritually, getting us to a place where we're vulnerable. And then, you know, it's inescapable that the fact that made is written into law. Now the law is meant to be instructive and people will think that it is right because the law says it's oh, yeah. right. And it's just obviously so not the case as Christians respond to this. Maybe you want to chat on that point for a second. Well, I, what comes to my mind is um, Jesus healing of what we would now call mental illness. So remember he gets in the boat, he goes across the sea of Galilee and he meets the man who's naked in the caves and he's living among the dead. And, you know, there's this exchange and Jesus cast these demons out of him into a herd of pigs because he was in Gentile territory and the man is healed. Well, this guy, if you were to describe him from, you know, using modern day medical terms would say, they would say this guy has severe mental illness. And then mm. they would, they, then they would maybe give it whatever, you know, label they would put on it. I mean, there's, there's all so- sorts of things, you know, schizophrenia, there's bipolar disorder and on and on and on. I, I don't even know what they all are, but there's, there's a lot out there, right? But I'm just giving a couple common ones. So they would analyze and assess this guy's behavior and say he has this disorder and guaranteed they'd want to medicate him guaranteed Mm -hmm. they'd medicate him and then put him through some sort of um, psychological counseling jesus sees it for what it was Mm -hmm. which was a spiritual issue he was an unregenerate man packed to the gills with demons jesus uses his authority to cast out the demons and the man is healed. So and unless you deny the veracity of scripture, you have to acknowledge that much of what we would call mental illness is actually a spiritual issue. I'm not denying mental illness that is physiological. Mm-hmm. I'll just stress mm-hmm. that, right? Yep, good point. So I don't want to lead my listeners astray. If a person has received a, a closed head injury, 
or through the use of drugs in the past has fried something in their mind or was born with some sort of a, a mental disability, then again, mm -hmm. it's physical and you deal with it physically. But uh, I think much of what we see today is spiritual and it's going to get worse. The farther people move from truth, the crazier we're going to get. Mm -hmm. The more lies we're told, the more our minds are going to break down. The structures of our minds, mm -hmm. the content of our minds, and even something as simple as learning to think in a linear way, to think logically and sequentially through thoughts and processes, to receive truth, to think about the implications. The scriptures communicate so much of the truth of God's word in that way. And when we don't, when we, when we tell people, no, truth is relative. Well, then how do I even think? Uh, when we allow people to be illogical and irrational, but that's okay. How do I even then think? Yeah, have you ever been, and again, I'm probably getting off a little topic a little bit, but sometimes you're in a conversation with someone and you're like, okay, how do I, how do I even respond to them? Because not only is what's coming out of their mouth wrong, but the way they think is incredibly confusing. Mm -hmm. They're not rational. And God created us as rational beings. They're not rational. Their, their argumentation is flawed. It's like, I don't even know where to start. Like there's, I can't even attack the argument until I help them to consider the way they're delivering it. So all of these things I, I would suggest are a result of the fall of man. And um, the human mind will degrade uh, in, a, in a pretty significant way, the further we remove ourselves from the God of truth and enlightens our minds and structures our minds. Mm -hmm. So we want to fight back against the darkness very clearly. We want to fight on a, a spiritual level. And ideally, we would love to make it a world where nobody even wants to choose medically assisted suicide because, you know, they've heard the truth. They know the theology of suffering. Uh, we also for very practically want to fight against laws that kind of push this direction. Right. Just as we conclude, obviously most people listening won't be the doctor injecting. There may be some people that are forced with that decision as, mm. you know, Christian practitioners of medicine that, you know, have to have a moral dilemma there where they, they need to, they're being called to uh, do that. But for the majority of us, what kind of steps forward, uh, we've kind of highlighted them a little bit, but maybe any final thoughts that you could give anybody? Yeah, well, first of all, if you're a physician or a medical practitioner, a nurse practitioner, for example, that's being encouraged to do this, just say no. I won't do it, period. Is it possible that you'll lose your job? Yes. But you want to stand before God and be complicit in the, in the murder of a human being as opposed to having lost your salary? No. And if all physicians and Christian nurses stood up, nurse practitioners stood up and said, nope, we're not doing it, that'd be the end of the story. So we should just say no at all, at all costs. Um, so in terms of a, a response, I think that we, we need to rally the church. So this means just like we're doing in this podcast, we need to preach and teach truth. We need to help people to think through the issues to remind people we're fearfully and wonderfully made, you know, Psalm 139, uh, we, we, we're not allowed to murder. God determines when our lives begin and end. Remind people of these truths. Remind people that their value is not in their productivity. 
even though God wants us to be productive if we're so able, that the value of life is not in pleasure, but that there's actually a, a redemptive opportunity in suffering, which in, on some level we're all going to suffer. Remind people of these fundamental truths. So part of the way out of this nightmare is teaching, teaching and preaching and just doing it relentlessly, mm -hmm. teaching and preaching, teaching and preaching, teaching and preaching the people of God, having churches that understand truth, teach and preach the word of God, period. It's part of the way out. Teach the young generation, teach the old gener older generation, teach everybody in between. So teaching is, is critical. Now, part of the role of a pastor is to equip the people for the work of the ministry and ministry takes place within the community of faith, but it also takes place in culture, in the academy, in mm -hmm. the hospital, in the factory. So when we equip people, we would expect then for people to go out and engage with politicians like communicate their displeasure because what I was doing a little bit of reading earlier today on this made bill and it, it's interesting how they were consulting the public mm -hmm. and these special interest groups like there's one I think it's called um, dying with dignity or mm -hmm. dignity for dying something like that they're 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 advocates for made so this just shows there could be grassroots movements that rise up that uh, promote um, this kind of thing, we can form our own groups. So we got to think long-term. We form our own pushback groups. We speak to our politicians. We write our politicians. More Christians need to run for office so they can weigh in on these decisions. It'd be great to have more Christians as MPPs and MLAs and MPs. Or, you know, in the U.S., more senators, more congressmen, right? That are Christians mm -hmm. that, that bring a Christian worldview into these circumstances. It would be good for more Christians to um, enter into medicine and to advocate for this, that, that which is righteous. And then for those that are more academically inclined in medicine to actually teach in our universities and colleges and to shape the mind. So all, all the reason why we've, we found ourselves here as a culture, and there's many nations around the world that are now practicing this, practicing this, is because we've turned the judiciary, the political establishment, society as a whole, our educational institutions, over to secular-minded, godless people. So they're making the decisions. Mm -hmm. So how do you combat that? We get back into those roles, like historically we, we were in those roles. Mm -hmm. And we voice our concern. This is a long-term game. This mm -hmm. isn't a, a six-month fix, right? A lot of Christians are like, what do I do? I, I got to protest. I got to write a letter because I got to fix this by next week. Well, that would be great. I'm eager to see it fixed as well. But we didn't get here quickly, and we're not going to get out of it quickly unless God That's good. You know, brings some radical renovation. Mm -hmm. Very, very good. Into culture. That's helpful. So hopefully the people listening, you've, you've benefited from this. We'll put some... Uh, different resources in the footnotes as well that you can uh, access. Um, before we go, Aaron, I just wanted to ask, is there anything in the news recently? There's there's one thing I know of in the news recently <laughs> that I think you'd love to share with everybody, yeah. but just anything on your mind kind of off the cuff? Well, we're super excited that the officials in Alberta, Canada have seen fit to dismiss all the charges against our brother, Pastor James Coates. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're very, we're, we're very delighted to receive that news this week. From what I understand, uh, he's going to be released on Friday. And his lawyers, I believe, want to 
have one of the minor charges stick. And uh, those of us that have been charged, I've also been charged here in Ontario for opening my church in contravention of the health orders, but in obedience to God. In some respects, the worst case scenario would be that everybody's tickets and summonses are dismissed and it's, and nobody, it's just a stalemate. I, I think that there's, we, we have to, if possible, somebody has to be in the courts about this so that it never happens again. So we're, we're thankful that the Lord is releasing our brother. We've been advocating for him. We're grateful for the many other pastors who, and elders who have stuck their necks out and who have, uh, you know, raised the flag of Christ high, higher than the, the Canadian flag and said, you know, we love our country, but we love God more and we want to obey him. So we want to commend uh, the pastors that have done that and especially Pastor Coates because he's the first and only man to actually do jail time for it. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, one, one thing I'll, I'll just say too, I had a friend ask me recently, you know, how, how are the churches doing that have fought and remained open? And I think one of the reasons why people are asking this question is because they're going back to their leaders and their leaders are like, you know, we, 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 can't, we, we can't open, we can't take the risk, we can't get fined. I'm here to tell you every church I know of that has remained open is growing. It's growing numerically. People are flooding into our churches. Uh, people are gravitating toward churches that are taking a stand. The finances of these churches across the board are strong. And the... There, while it has been challenging emotionally, mm-hmm. kind of mentally and spiritually to take a stand in the face of public opposition and pushback, there has been great blessing. Greater blessing has come from taking a stand than there has been penalty. And while we're not necessarily guaranteed that immediately, uh, if there's churches or church leaders out there that are sort of sitting on the fence thinking, I don't know if I can take the risk. I would just beseech you to take the risk. You will bless your people. Yeah, you're going to take a few punches in the jaw for it, but you will bless your people and you will be a blessing to your nation. Hmm. Well, thank you, Aaron. And thank you to each of you who have tuned in today. Uh, If you've enjoyed today's conversation and been blessed by it, we'd encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it on social media. Uh, If you found yourself in a spot where you are in suffering and you're struggling, uh, just reach out to a church. Look, if you're looking for a church that's a good church, there's just look if it's open. And uh, if the church is open, it's probably a, a, a church that is standing on the authority of God's word. Most importantly, we just ask that you tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.